Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word that you've given us minds and hearts to understand just a glimpse of what you're trying to show us. Uh, Lord, guide me as I um, explain and teach through Genesis 20 and 21 that your name would be named above all names, that we would understand your sovereignty, your control in our lives, and that we would give our lives to you to give thanks. In your name we pray. Amen. So today we're in chapter 20 and 21 and 21 of Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and it lays down a lot of foundational teachings for life, foundational teachings of the Bible, and it really sets up the rest of this book. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles in front of you. They're a gift from the Northern Collective to you. Uh, we're on page 15 for uh, Genesis chapter 20 and 21. And today we're looking at God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, that God alone is sovereign. So I'm going to explain what that means in a little bit. But the book of Genesis, I'm just going to give you a little summary, a recap of what the entire book is. So it's 50 chapters. So we're not even halfway through yet. Thank you for being with us. <laughs> but for the first 11 chapters... It's kind of a, an overview of God's relationship with the entire world. So chapters 1 and 11, they look at this good, gracious, loving God creating the world. Plants, animals, nature, humans. And it was all in a very good relationship. He created the first two people, Adam and Eve. They walked with God, they talked with God, and it was very good. But then they rebelled. They disobeyed God in this perfect garden that he had made. And this rebellion, which the Bible describes as sin, has entered the world. And it has cursed the world through generation after generation after generation into today. And so we're seeing this downward spiral of this sin. We see the first murder. We're seeing lying, cheating, adultery the worship of other gods, the worship of themselves. In, in chapter 11, the people, they come together. And the idea was that God's people were to spread around the world and bless the world, but they decided to stay together, make a tower to God, and they wanted to be God. They wanted to be like God. But God scattered them. And the world is cursed, is under the curse of sin. Until chapter 12. And so some, some teachers of the Bible, they call chapter 12 the hinge. The hinge of Genesis. Chapter 12 is how you understand the entire book of Genesis. God encounters this man named Abraham. And he makes a promise to Abraham. He says, through you... You will have descendants as numerous as the stars, and through you, you will be a blessing to the world. So in a way, God is saying, I'm going to reverse the curse through you and your family. So the latter half of Genesis, chapters 12 to 50, we're now focusing on God's relationship, not with the entire world now, but God's relationship with Abraham and his family in the next generations. So that's where we are in chapters 20 and 21. We're looking at the fact that God alone is sovereign. 
God alone is in control. Because I must ask you, we must ask ourselves, who is in ultimate control of our lives? Who is ultimately sovereign of our life? In the Yukon, we have this high independence where we can just eat grizzly bears all day and find our own food and live on our own. And we don't need anybody telling us what to do. We don't want teachers telling us what to do. Sometimes we don't want our spouses telling us what to do. We don't want our bosses telling us what to do, let alone God telling us what to do. So who's in control of our life? We think we are. And that's what sin is. Sin is spelled S, capital I, N, because sin looks out for number one, me. So we think we're in control, but the Bible, throughout the Bible, and we'll see in Genesis 20 and 21, that the Bible teaches us that God alone is sovereign. Sovereignty, what does that mean? God is the supreme authority and all things are under his control. God is the supreme authority and all things are under his control. One dictionary defines God's sovereignty this way. Sovereignty is God's absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. God's sovereignty is his absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. God is in control of everything. The snowflakes land where they are because God says they do. He is in control of everything. And that's a good thing only if he is a good God. It's not so good if I am totally sovereign. Have you ever seen that movie, Bruce Almighty, with Jim Carrey? And he's God, and he's kind of answering everybody's prayers. So this guy, Bruce, somehow God in this movie allows him to be God for like a day or something. And then he gets all these emails, so like prayer requests go to Bruce, and he gets his inbox, and a bunch of people are like, hey, I want to win the lottery. That's their prayer. And he's like, oh, I'll just say reply all, yes to all. And then the, everything will be good. So everybody, they all find out they win the lottery, but they only get like a penny because it's the, the, the winnings spread over. But it, unless you're an all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing God, it's, it's not good news. But the Bible teaches us, teaches us that this God is sovereign and he is a good God. So we're in chapter 20 and it opens with this. Abraham moves south to the Negev. So Abraham moved, he's kind of a nomadic traveler, and now he's moving to this place called Negev. And lived for a while between Kedesh and Shur, and then he moved on to Gerar. While living there as a foreigner, while living there as a foreigner, Abraham introduced his wife, Sarah, by saying, She is my sister. So came King Abimelech of Gerar sent for Sarah and had her brought to him at this place, or at his palace. I'm going to pause here for a second. King Abimelech, as a king, at this time, you, you kind of have this right to take people for your own purposes. So King Abimelech, it says, he sends somebody to take Sarah, Abraham's wife. And as they get there, Abraham says, She's actually not my wife, she's my sister. 
And so Abimelech takes her. And so this jeopardizes something. This jeopardizes a promise that God makes to Sarah in chapter 18. In chapter 18, Genesis 18, verse 10, God makes this promise. He says, I will return to you about this time next year and your wife Sarah will have a son. So there's this promise in their mind, Sarah's going to give birth in a year. And so it's about a year and, or it's in between a year and Abimelech, they're in this new place and Abimelech just takes Sarah. And so this is jeopardizing this promise it looks like. And why did Abimelech take her? He wouldn't have if she was his wife and they said that. But they lied. So Abimelech thinks that Sarah is Abraham's sister. And this is a trick. This is something that Abraham and Sarah have done before. The old, my wife is my sister trick. You know that trick, right? Genesis 12. Verses 11 to 12, this is what it says. As he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abraham, Abram said to his wife, Sarai, their names changed, look, you are a very beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him. Then we can have her. So please tell them you are my sister. Then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. Brilliant idea, Abraham, he thinks. So Abraham, at this point, he chose to think he was more sovereign than God. He trusted himself and his weird plan, his sinful plan. He trusted that rather than God. So at this point, Abraham is okay with this, this lie. The idea of, oh yeah, I believe in God. I trust God, but... I want to make sure things work out my way. So I'm just going to say this little lie here to protect myself. Do we do that sometimes? Do we lie? It's just a little lie. A little white lie, we say. Maybe in my case, I say a little yellow lie. A little white lie. Wait for applause. Good. It's a complicated joke. It's a little white lie. We're going to change a story. When we're recapping a story, we make ourselves look like either the hero or the victim. It's just a little lie. Or we just choose to do things our own way and we don't even stop to think about praying. Christians, do we do that? I know I do that. So right here, Abraham's sin is grounded in his momentary lack of trust in God's sovereignty. He doesn't trust God's sovereignty at this point. And he says, Sarah, we're going to do that thing again. I'm going to say you're my sister so that I can live. Capiche? Abraham should have known better. Yet how often do we make the same mistake more than once? I know we can look at Abraham and think, what an idiot. If this didn't work in Egypt, why do you think it's going to work now? But we do that, don't we? We go back to the same mistake. Or we find ourselves back committing the sins that we used to commit. There's certain old sins that each of us, 
if we're honest, that we're uniquely drawn to. That in a book called Hebrews, it says that clings so easily to us. Sins that may not appeal to each of you. Like my sins don't appeal to you and your sins may not appeal to me. But there are things that we go to. Whether it's eating, shopping, lying, drinking, pornography, gossiping. We tend to go back. Because it's the human heart. This is Abraham's heart. This is our heart. We go back to those things and we are repeat offenders and we do it again and again. And when we sin, when we do these things, it's because we love that sin more than we love God. When we sin, it's because we love that sin more than we love God. We love our own satisfaction rather than God. Sin is rooted in our lack of love in God. When we sin, when we disobey, when we rebel against God, it is always at that moment a lack of love for God. So this is Abraham. This is us. We continue in verse 3. Abimelech takes Sarah. Verse 3, but that night God came to Abimelech in a dream and told him, You are a dead man, for the woman you have taken is already married. What's going on here? God sovereignly shows up in a specific person's dream and corrects him. And this happens actually quite often in those who are Muslim converting to Christianity. You'll often hear that they'll say, Jesus showed up in a dream, Jesus showed up in a vision, and now I follow him. So these things still happen today. God is sovereign, and he, he, he shows up in dreams. Verse 4, But Abimelech had not slept with Sarah yet. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Didn't Abraham tell me she's my sister? And she herself said, yes, he is my brother. I acted in complete innocence. My hands are clean. Abraham and Sarah are in the whole lie. They're, they're, in, they're in cahoots. They're doing this together because she said, yes, he is my brother. And Abimelech is actually telling the truth. He's saying, my hands are clean. I didn't know. And there's this contrast. It's showing that this king, this actually corrupt king, is acting more morally than Abraham, the supposed hero of the story. And Abraham drags Sarah down with him. In verse 6, In the dream, God responded, Yes, I know you are innocent. That's why I kept you from sinning against me and why I did not let you touch her. Now return the woman to her husband and he will pray for you. For he is a prophet. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. Then you will live. But if you don't return her to him, you can be sure that you and all your people will die. God is sovereignly intervening to make sure nothing happens to Sarah, to make sure that he sovereignly upholds the promise that he has made. Only God's sovereignty protects Abraham and Sarah. 
And at this point, Abimelech trusts God's sovereign warning. We read in verse 8, Abimelech got up early the next morning, quickly called all his servants together. When he told them what had happened, his men were terrified. Then Abimelech called for Abraham. What have you done to us, he demanded. What crime have I committed that deserves treatment like this, making me and my kingdom guilty of these, this great sin? No one should ever do what you have done. Whatever possessed you to do such a thing? So God's all-knowing, all-powerful character kept Abimelech from violating Sarah and demanded that he return her to Abraham. And Abimelech listened to the sovereign God. There was no questioning. There was no, I'm going to do this anyways, like we do. And, and Abimelech listened. But then Abraham gives his lame and cowardly reply in verse 11. Abraham replied, I thought, this, I thought this is a godless place. They will want my wife and will kill her, kill me to get her. And she really is my sister, for we both have the same father but different mothers, and I married her. When God called me to leave my father's home and to travel from place to place, I told her, do me a favor. Wherever we go... Tell the people that I am your brother. So the old wife equals sister trick is actually an ongoing agreement they have with one another. That wherever we go, do me a favor. Wherever we go, tell the people that I am your brother. And, and we have Abimelech returning Sarah. But then we, it's contrasting Abraham's selfishness and how the response to God's sovereignty is so different. And we go to verse 14. Then Abimelech took some of the sheep and goats, cattle and male and female servants, and he presented them to Abraham. He also returned his wife, Sarah, to him. Then Abimelech said, Look over my land and choose any place where you would like to live. And he said to Sarah, Look, I'm giving your brother a thousand pieces of silver in the presence of all these witnesses. This is to compensate you for any wrong I may have done to you. This will settle any claim against me and your reputa reputation is cleared. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female servants so that they could have children. For the Lord had caused all the women to be infertile because of what happened with Abraham's wife, Sarah. God is so powerful. He is so sovereign that he is the one who did not allow the women of this place to have children. It said women were infertile because of what happened to Abraham's wife. It says in verse 18, for the Lord had caused the women to do that. And God healed their land, verse 17. God alone is sovereign and he rescued Sarah and Abraham undeservedly, undeservedly so. Because he is sovereignly committed to fulfilling a promise he made to Sarah. And then we read the birth of the promised son in chapter 21. We'll start in verse 1. The Lord kept his word 
and did for Sarah exactly, exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant. She gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would. And Abraham named the son Isaac. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham was circumcised. Or Abraham... (laughs) No, Abraham was not circumcised. Abraham circumcised him, Isaac, as God commanded him. As God commanded him. So when you're sovereign, you can command people. When you're a king... When you are God, you can command people, and they must obey. Verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. And Isaac's name actually means to laugh. All who hear about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a baby? Yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. So Sarah right here, she recognizes that God has given her a son and that this sovereign God is the God of the impossible. Abraham is old, but Sarah is 90, around 90 years old, and she has a baby. You're not going to read about that. I was actually Googling, like, who is the oldest person in the world to have a baby? There was a 75-year-old lady, I think, in Italy, who gave birth to a baby? And that was, that's, that's pushing it. So we're talking 90, that's impossible. Sarah knew it chapters before, and she gives birth to a baby. So when Isaac grew up and was, out to, was about to be weaned, And for those of you who don't know what the word weaned is, it means you're not breastfeeding anymore. And traditionally at this time, it's about three years old. I'm not going to say anything more about that. Abraham prepared, I just, I'm thinking my kids, like my kids three, but anyways. (laughs) Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion, but Sarah saw Ishmael. So Ishmael, who's Ishmael? Ishmael, we're reading in verse nine, is, is, this is the half-brother, and is, they remembered God made a promise. So God made the promise to Sarah, like, you're going to be a nation, you're going to be a great nation, you're going to have many descendants, and Sarah's thinking, how am I going to have a baby? I'm crazy old. I'm beyond the age of childbearing. I can't do it. Abraham, you have sex with my servant Hagar, and she will have birth, and this, was, this is who Ishmael is half-brother through the servant of Abraham and Sarah. So the son of Abraham and her Egyptian servant, Hagar, were making fun of her son, Isaac. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, get rid of that slave woman and her son. He's not going to share the inheritance with my son, Isaac. I won't have it. Verse 11, this upset Abraham very much because Ishmael was his son. But God told Abraham, Do not be upset over the boy and your servant. Do whatever Sarah tells you, for Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. But I will also make a nation of the descendants of Hagar's son, because he is your son too. Verse 14, So Abraham got up early the next morning, prepared food and a container of water, and strapped them on Hagar's shoulders. 
Then he sent her away with their son, and she wandered aimlessly in the wilderness in Beersheba. When the water was gone, she put the boy in the shade of a bush. And then she went and sat down by herself about a hundred yards away. I don't want to watch the boy die, she said, as she burst into tears. But God heard the boy crying. How could God hear the boy crying? He's omnipresent. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven, Hagar, what's wrong? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Go to him and comfort him, for I will make a great nation from his descendants. God does not abandon Hagar and her son Ishmael. When there's an encounter with God and in, in, in Hagar in Genesis chapter 16, she says of God, you are a God that sees me. She's this broken slave woman with no reputation. This is a God that sees the broken. This is a God that sees the forgotten, the abandoned, the invisible, the outcast, the awkward in society. God sees them and we should see them because this is not who God came for. The lost and the broken and the destitute, the forgotten, the invisible. The ones that we, even as a church, tend to reject. I'm not saying Northern Collect, I'm saying as a whole. That we want people who can give us money. We want people who are smart. We want people who are not weird. Aren't we all a little weird? No, just me? Okay, you don't have to say anything about that. But he's the God of the broken. He sees Hagar and Ishmael. Even though Sarah and Abraham rejected them, God in his sovereignty comes. And what does he do? Verse 19. Then God opened Hagar's eyes and she saw a well full of water. She quickly filled her water container and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up in the wilderness. He became a skillful archer and he settled in the wilderness of Paran. His mother arranged for him to marry a woman from the land of Egypt. God, was, God is there. He's with her. Shows her where to get water. It says God was with the boy as he grew up. Verse 22. About this time, Abimelech came with Phicol, his army commander, to visit Abraham. God is obviously with you, helping you in everything you do, Abimelech said. Swear to me in God's name that you will never deceive me, my children or any of my descendants. I have been loyal to you, so now swear that you will be loyal to me into this country where you are living as a foreigner. Abimelech, we're not, we're not sure if he's following God at this point, but he's recognizing the power of God's sovereignty and the presence of God in Abraham's life. He's like, listen, God, in verse 22, God is obviously with you. It reminds me of this story. There's all these contractors here, and uh, they, they, they need to put their name in a lottery so they can get a lot, so they can build a house on it, and that's how contractors, people who build homes, make a living. And so... 
there's all these contractors and they're in a room and one of them is a Christian and he's, he's, a, he's an open Christian and he seems to always be getting contracts. And the other worker is like, what? Why? How do you keep getting contracts? And once I know why, because God is with him. And whether that's the case or not, if he's just more business savvy, but there was just kind of this like, what? Why are you getting all these contracts? So that's what Abimelech is saying to Abraham. God is obviously with you. And he recognizes the power of God's sovereignty in his life and the presence of God's presence in his life. And if you're a Christian here, do you think people would say that about us? Do you think people would say that about our church, that God is with you? Or are we just busybodies and we've exchanged fruitfulness as a Christian with a full calendar? And we say, because my calendar is full and I'm doing a lot of good things, God is with us. Would, would people say, God is with you? God is clearly with you. I see it in the way you treat your wife. I see it in the way you handle yourself at work. I see it when you're walking the street. I see it when you're dealing with people at a restaurant. That there is something different about you. And people would say, it's obvious that God is with you. Because you couldn't do this with your own power. Would they say that about our church? There's a story of a Chinese missionary and he came to visit churches in America and this American pastor is giving a tour of this really big church and he's like, this is where we do this, this is where this meets, this is where our equipment blasts and lasers come out and everything. And, and the Chinese missionary looked at him and he said, it's amazing how much you can do without God's power. You can do, anybody can do that. Anybody can sing songs, but we're talking about transformation that has no explanation to say that God is there. There's no explanation. There's no explanation for, for the Northern Collective to be here. If it just came down to Harrison Savvy and all that stuff, it just wouldn't, that, that doesn't have longevity unless God is with us. <clears throat> Moving on, verse 24. Abraham replied, Yes, I swear to it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well that Abimelech's servants had taken by force from Abraham's servants. This is the first I've heard of it, Abimelech answered. I have no idea who is responsible. You have never complained about this before. Abraham then gave some of his sheep, goats, and cattle to Abimelech, and they made a treaty. But Abraham also took seven additional female lambs and set them off by themselves. Abimelech asked, Why have you set these seven apart from the others? Abraham replied, Please accept these seven lambs to show your agreement that I dug this well. Then he named the place Beersheba, which means well of the oath. Because that was where they had sworn the oath. After making their covenant at Beersheba, Abimelech left with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned home to the land of the Philistines. Verse 33, Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he worshipped the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham lived as a foreigner in Philistine country for a long time. What, is this, what are these two chapters showing us? is showing us that despite Abraham's lack of faith, 
Despite Sarah's cruelty towards Ishmael and Hagar, God sovereignly chooses to bless them. God is sovereignly keeping his promise to Abraham despite failure after failure. And the promise continues to echo throughout generations and how sovereign God is. Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. This is a promise that God has made and he is keeping. And that is the story of the Bible. That when you read these 66 books written by 44 different authors over generations, it is one story of how God is a promise keeping God and is showing himself to be sovereign over everything. There's nothing we can do to thwart. That's a great word, by the way. There's nothing you can do to thwart or stop God's plan. He is an unstoppable God and his promises will be fulfilled. And that is amazing news because he looks at people like us and if we're honest we are screw-ups we've screwed up in our parenting we've screwed up as being sons and daughters and we continue to fail but God is sovereignly keeping his promise to keep and make a great nation of Abraham he's protecting Abraham's lineage that there will come someone from this line that will reverse the curse and will be a blessing to the world. And as you read the Bible, as you read with us as the Northern Collective, we're trying to read the Bible in a year. We have those reading plans in the back that we'll see that God is promising to fulfill this promise to Abraham. How? Through Jesus Christ. That everything, all the stories of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, of the Old Promise is leading to is a shadow towards Jesus Christ who will ultimately bless the world, who will live a perfect life, who will bless the world on, our, on, the, on behalf of Abraham and his family. And he is part of Abraham's lineage. God is choosing to bless us, sinners, failures despite who we are 